This is Jennifer Gonzalez welcoming you to episode 88 of the Cult of Pedagogy podcast. In this episode, I'm going to explore one question. Are you a curator or a dumper? Suppose you know a lot about a certain topic. For the sake of argument, let's say that topic is sushi. One evening, you're on social media somewhere and an acquaintance posts this. Have never tried sushi. Any advice? Oh my gosh, you totally have advice. You start by sending your friend a link. Then you find another one. Then, well, there's just so much great stuff out there. She should know about it. So you send her over to this Google Doc you made that contains more links. Now, since you can't see this, I have a picture of it on the site, I'm going to describe the doc for you. Picture a blue background with the title in red. It says, my awesome list of sushi resources, and it's in red, and it's bold, and it's underlined, and it's italicized. <laughs> and then the rest of the document is 11 hyperlinks to different websites. It's all the HTTP style links, and that's it. It's just a huge list of links. It's got a cute little picture of sushi at the top. Now, I hate to break it to you, but your friend, she went to that first link you sent her on social media and she read most of the article. It gave her some useful information, stuff she probably could have looked up on her own, but still, it helped. The second link you sent, she meant to get to, but then she got called away from her computer and never got back to it. And your Google Doc? She took one look at it, got overwhelmed, and left. And it's a shame because you have some really good stuff on that list, especially the one in the right-hand column, second to the last on the list. It's an article called, What is the Best Sushi for Beginners to Try for the Very First Time So You Won't Get Something Nasty or Disgusting? Believe me, it does happen. It's a funny article. It's sort of like having a friend like walk you through the process and make sure that you have a really good experience. It's practical. But your friend never read that one because there was no way to sift it out from the others, no way to know what made it special. And like everyone else, your friend only has so many hours in a day. You just dumped too much on her at once. You were being a dumper. And it's really unfortunate because you have vast experience with sushi. You really are the ideal person to hand select a few resources that would perfectly meet her needs. Imagine if you had looked over your list and picked out a smaller number of items, then shared them in a way that would preview each one before she even opened it. Imagine a plain white screen with four sushi-related photos on it. Each one has a title below it, then a short paragraph describing the resource. When you click on the photo, it takes you to a website or video that teaches you something different about sushi. Just four things. If you'd sent this to her, you would have been curating, not dumping. I've talked about curation before in episode 66, but then I was talking about it as an assignment for students. Now I want to focus on you, the educator. Whether you're a teacher, an administrator, a librarian, a researcher, whatever you do, chances are you have information to share with other people and developing your curation skills is going to make that sharing a lot more effective. In this episode, we'll start by looking at why dumping is bad for the brain, 
and curation is good. Then we'll consider some school-related situations when good curation skills would come in handy. Next, we'll go through a list of guidelines you can follow to fine-tune your curation skills. And finally, I'll share a few tech tools that can help you curate digitally. Before we get started, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, PeerGrade. PeerGrade is a platform that makes it easy to facilitate peer review in your classroom. Students review each other's work, while PeerGrade takes care of anonymously assigning reviewers and delivering all the relevant insights to teachers. With PeerGrade, students learn to think critically and take ownership of their learning. They also learn to write kind and useful feedback for their peers. PeerGrade is free to use for teachers and students. To learn more, visit cultofpedagogy.com slash PeerGrade, P-E-E-R-G-R-A-D-E. I'd also like to thank you for the reviews you've left for this podcast on iTunes. Reviews are really important for a podcast success, and over 500 of you have already taken the time to leave me one. I check them every week, and I appreciate them so much. If you haven't left a review yet, but you like what I'm doing here, take a few minutes, head over to iTunes, and let me know. Thanks so much. One more thing. If you have any interest in how I put this podcast together, how I got started with my website, and other personal stuff about me that's not strictly related to education, you might be interested in two interviews I did on other people's podcasts. The first one is The Dr. Will Show with Will D'Amport, where we talk mostly about podcasting. The episode is called The Good, The Bad, and The Podcast. The other show is called The Engine Mom Podcast with Maria Alcoke. On that episode called Nerding Out and the Cult of Pedagogy, we talk about parenting, CrossFit, and how I went from teaching at the college level to running my site and hosting this podcast. So that's the Dr. Will Show and Engine Mom. Okay, let's get started. First, we're going to talk about why dumping is bad for brains. When we dump a lot of information on a person at once, we are working against their brain. Cognitive load theory suggests that the brain can only take in so much at once. When we're presented with a whole bunch of information, our brains have to ignore some in order to process the rest. Eventually, if too much keeps coming at us, we reach the point of cognitive overload, where we get more than we can handle. At that point, a lot of people just shut down and even simple information can't get in. It's a bit like being told to go learn something about history by going into a room stuffed top to bottom with antique tchotchkes, old clocks, vases, figurines, lamps, all piled on top of each other. And I've got a picture of one of these on the site. No doubt there are plenty of items in the room that have historical significance, but they're all just dumped in there. Our brains learn by grouping lots of pieces of information into groups and patterns. Cognitive scientists call these patterns schemas and connecting it to knowledge we already have in long-term memory. So someone with considerable knowledge of the time periods represented in that room would be able to make some sense of it because they've already got schemas that they can fit the objects into. But the rest of us would do better off with the help of curators. That's what a good museum does for us. It takes piles and piles of artifacts and selects only a few to represent an idea, a moment, an event, or a phenomenon. Then it carefully arranges those artifacts 
starting with an introduction, often something written by the curators themselves to introduce the collection and provide us with meaningful context. Then it introduces the artifacts in groups, again adding its own editorial comments and explanations along the way, guiding us through the experience so that we aren't forced to take too much in at once. We're given time and space to savor each artifact one at a time. Instead of being crowded together in one big heap, items are grouped together under a common theme, so we see them as parts of a larger whole. And on the site, I've got three really nice pictures from the National Museum of American History. Um, it's of a display of Japanese Americans in World War II, and it really sort of illustrates how museums do this all the time. And it's going to be familiar to you in terms of, you know, we've all been to museums, but um, I'm not sure how many of us have taken a look at a museum and thought, could I do something similar even with my own written materials in terms of rolling things out a little at a time and really letting people focus on one thing um, carefully instead of just dumping everything on them. And it's not only museums that pay attention to this stuff. The tech industry is also very concerned with cognitive overload. In fact, there's a whole field in tech called user experience design. It's UX for short. UX designers spend all of their time looking at how to improve the way users interact with websites and other digital products. They look at the smallest details, like the shape of the buttons we click. And I swear to you, I read an article about this once, about whether the curved edge buttons or the straight edge buttons work better. <laughs> they look at whether serif or sans serif fonts get better responses and where exactly to place a menu on a page. Companies that invest in UX know that if they don't bother with these details, you will eventually leave their website and go to another better designed site. Even though educators don't have the financial incentive to pay attention to this stuff, we should. Plenty of educational situations would give us better results if we did. And here are a few education-related scenarios where good curation could make a difference. The first one is in student-directed learning. As more classrooms move toward differentiated, flipped, blended, and student-directed learning models, we will need to do more gathering and sharing collections of resources for students to choose from, rather than picking one resource to deliver to everyone at one time. If our delivery is sloppy, or our collections are thrown together kitchen sink style, these models will be less successful. One of the most popular hyperdoc models includes an explore section where a set of resources is provided and students choose which items to engage with in order to learn about the topic. So it'll be like a link of art link. So it'll be like a list of articles and maybe a couple videos and students sort of have to pick which ones they want to explore. Too many choices just dumped together will overwhelm most students. So offer choice. Yes but curate those choices carefully so students don't waste a lot of time wading through all of their options. Another situation where curation would help is with classroom or school libraries. If your students aren't checking out books very often, you may be able to improve things with more curation. This may come in the form of aggressively weeding out books that students have no interest in, 
a process that teacher Pernille Rip described in episode 84 as an essential step toward building a thriving classroom library. It might also include creating special displays of books grouped around a common theme, or posting student recommendations on specific books like they do with staff recommendations in bookstores. Another situation that curation would help is with communication with parents. When we send newsletters, flyers, and emails home to parents, we obviously want them to be read. But as a mother of three, I can tell you that an awful lot of skimming is happening. With that in mind, we will have much greater success if we apply some basic curation and design principles to those items. I wrote about this in a guest post for Corkboard Connections a few years ago. It's called Why No One Reads Your Classroom Newsletter, and I provide a link to that over on the website. If you just go to cultofpedagogy.com, click on podcast, and then choose episode 88, you'll go there. And in this article, I basically just show five different tweaks that you can make to things like classroom newsletters to actually make people uh, more likely to read them. Another situation where curation would help is with school or teacher websites. It seems to me that one company designed the basic template for all school and district websites, maybe around 2004, and since then, far too many schools have never strayed from that. I'm not gonna point fingers at any one school, but I think you know what I mean. The menu has hundreds of items, the page is broken up into dozens of little squares of information, and everything is in 12-point font. No white space. They're functional, but cluttered. By contrast, there are other schools that are doing a beautiful job with websites, and this is something you have to see. So if you come over to the blog post, I've got uh, three uh, websites linked. I'll tell you the names of them if you want to just look them up. It's the Dalton School in New York City, Vail Mountain School in Vail, Colorado, or the Gibraltar School District in Woodhaven, Michigan. These sites make me want to click around, learn more. They make me excited about the learning that is happening in these schools. And it all comes down to the design, the thoughtful way the content is organized with the user experience in mind. All schools could do this. Finally, one more situation where curation would help in an educational setting is sharing research. Maybe you're trying to convince your team to try a new method. Maybe you're an administrator who wants your staff to learn more about a certain learning theory. Maybe you're delivering PD to a group of teachers. Or maybe you're the one doing the research and you want to get it out to the world. In any of these situations, taking the time to narrow your focus to just a few items and then share them in a way that's appealing will make it more likely that people will actually consume the stuff you're sharing. For in-person delivery, getting better at slide design and presentation can help a lot. And for that, I recommend Gar Reynolds' book, Presentation Zen. I feel like I've talked about this book so many times, but honestly, if I had to just create a list of 10 books that I feel like all teachers should read, that would be one of them, Presentation Zen. Now for online sharing, like PDFs or websites, I would check out two websites, and these are both people that I've had on the show, uh, The Learning Scientists and RetrievalPractice.org. Both of these sites are excellent examples of taking complex research and making it consumable for a wider audience. And this is sort of a dream of mine. I mean, these are two people, or actually it's several people on, on Learning Scientists, but they have... They have figured out a way to take academic research and really make it so that the average person 
can benefit from it and understand it. And if more people in academia could follow that model with whatever their specialty is, it would unlock so much knowledge that is currently being just locked up inside of dense, statistic-heavy um, documents that are, A, hard to read anyway for people who are not trained in reading academic research, time-consuming to read, and also a lot of times they're locked inside of JSTOR or something. You need to pay $35 to see the PDF of them. And all of that, I think, is well and good if you are in the world of academia. But if you are a person who is just working in a regular job and you benefit from reading that research, doing what they're doing over at the Learning Scientists or at retrievalpractice.org and taking that research and making it easier for people to consume, I feel like that is just such a gift. So that's just a side note. I just, I really want to see more researchers doing what they're doing. All right. I am going to take a moment to thank our other sponsor, Pear Deck. Speaking of making things visually appealing. Every day, teachers present material through PowerPoint or Google Slides presentations while students watch from their seats. The problem with that model is that it doesn't really engage students. Some will tune you out. Others might be lost and not every student wants to speak in front of class. With Pear Deck, you can take that same presentation, add interactive questions, and send it straight to student devices so they can participate in real time. As students engage with your Pear Deck, you see their responses on your device, so you can tell right away who's getting it and who needs help. Built by experienced educators and tested in the real world, Pear Deck is integrated with G Suite for Education and is a fun way to get every learner participating. Pear Deck is offering my listeners a free 30-day premium access trial. Just go to PearDeck.com slash Cult of Pedagogy now to redeem. Now let's get back to curation. The next thing we're going to talk about are some guidelines. So in any of the scenarios we talked about, Keep the following guidelines in mind when deciding what to share and how to share it. Number one is keep the best, lose the rest. Less is almost always more. So once you get to the point where you're sharing multiple resources on the same topic, you should be able to get rid of some and keep only the very best. This is easier said than done because you want to be helpful and every additional item probably does add something unique to the mix. Just keep reminding yourself that the goal is to have the person actually consume the thing you're sharing, and too much will send them running for the hills, so keep paring it down until it's a nice, manageable size. Guideline number two is chunk it. If you are sharing more than just a few resources, break the collection into smaller subsets. Give each section some kind of title to help users find what they're interested in more quickly. Number three, add your own introductions. Just like that museum curator places an explanatory paragraph near most artifacts, you can do the same with your resources. Give your audience some context to help them know what the resource is and what they will learn from it. Another way to do this is to offer a brief preview or excerpt from the article itself. Number four is to use images as anchors. Although this can take extra time, Adding an image before each item in your collection 
can help readers visually distinguish one item from another. It'll also help them find items more quickly later on. And if you come over to the blog post, I've got a list of tech tools that I'm going to describe in a few minutes. And for each one, I just have a little screenshot of the tool in action before I describe the tool. And just doing this, it really just helps people find their way. If you're just making a list of links, there's just really no way to tell one thing from the other. Number five is polish your hyperlinks. When your resource sharing includes a link to something, you can provide that link in one of two ways. Giving the person the raw HTTP link will certainly work, but these links usually look cluttered and complicated. What's more appealing to the human eye is text that tells us something about the thing they're clicking over to. You can accomplish this by changing the link text. Now, probably a lot of people listening are already familiar with how to do this, but in case you're not, I've actually provided a link just to show you how to do this in a Google Doc. I'm talking about the difference between um, you know, sometimes you'll click on a link that is, it actually is the URL that you're going to. And then other times it'll just say this article about sushi. And that's written in more human friendly language. The way that you do this is actually super easy. And once you've learned it in one program, you can pretty easily figure out how to do it in a lot of other programs. So if this is not a skill you have yet, it is something that will make you feel really tech savvy once you've got it down. So I would recommend that you come over to the blog post and watch this tutorial and then try it the next time you send an email or um, something like that. Okay, and the sixth guideline and the last one is always, always build in white space. I cannot emphasize this one enough. Creating space around your resources and by white space, it might mean black space. If your background is black, then the space might be black. White space is more of a concept than a specific color, but it's it's the unused space around the words or images in the thing that you're sharing. And doing this is just essential for a good user experience. So whether you're sending an email, creating a newsletter, or designing a bulletin board, avoid cramming items together. Instead, cut back on the number of items and give your audience's eyes some rest. This can be as simple as just hitting the enter key an extra time if you are about to introduce a list or something in an email and just giving a little bit of extra space around the chunks of information that you're sharing. Okay, and the last thing I wanted to talk about um, are just a couple of curation tools that are online digital tools that you can use when you're actually going to be sharing things electronically. And there are six of them. The first one is called eLink. And their website is elink.io. It's not a .com. This one is probably the simplest of them all. You just insert a link, and then the tool lets you add your own introduction, and you can even pull in an image. Um, I actually use this one for the sushi example that I show online, but it just gives you a really clean product. It's just you basically end up with um, a unique web page that just has a couple of pictures and the picture has a little um, line of text underneath it and a little paragraph and then you click on it and you go over to the website and it's a really, really clean, pretty simple way to um, share a collection of online resources with somebody. Pinterest, a lot of people are already familiar with this, but this is a pretty easy way to just save links to resources on a themed board and then you can share the board with others. 
Another resource is called Live Binders. This one's been around actually for quite a while, but they've freshened up their design. So it's, um, I don't know, I think it's a, it's a little nicer looking now than it used to be. A Live Binder is basically like an online notebook where you can organize collected items under individual tabs. In a single Live Binder, you can gather links to websites, videos, uploaded documents, and even personal notes you type in yourself. And that makes this an excellent tool for larger and more complex collections. And that is at livebinders.com. The fourth tool is called Sutori, and this one is probably the newest of the group. It's S-U-T-O-R-I.com. And this one is very different looking. Collections on this platform are organized as vertical timelines. You basically just have to go look at it to understand. This is an especially nice option if you want your audience to experience your collection in a specific order because they scroll down the page and each element sort of comes in one at a time in this you know long timeline. It's almost the same way that a museum would create a path for visitors to follow. And just like a lot of these other sites, you can... Um, you can include you know, links to articles and videos and images and that sort of thing. So it's another place to, to store a collection. Number five is Padlet, P-A-D-L-E-T dot com. Um, this is like a virtual corkboard. Uh, it's just a nice space where you can post notes and images and links to articles, and you can kind of just rearrange them all right on the page. Also, because this one has good features for collaboration, it's a nice option for uh, curating a collection with other people's help, doing it together. That's Padlet. The very last one, and I've mentioned it already earlier in this episode, is HyperDocs. So HyperDoc is not a specific website or app. You actually make these yourself out of a Google Doc. The HyperDoc framework would be perfect for building and sharing collections of resources. If you are not really sure what HyperDocs are or how they work, I would say listen to episode 70, which is devoted entirely to HyperDocs. So we've talked about the cognitive science behind curation. Uh, we've looked at some situations when good curation would be helpful to you as an educator. We've gone over some guidelines for doing curation well and some tools that can help you do it. So the last question I want to address is why bother? What is the point of all this? We're not running a museum. We're not designers. Our job is not necessarily to entertain and enthrall our students with graphic design and finely tuned UX. So why bother? Well, apart from the fact that it just makes things work better, developing our curation skills is just another way to elevate our craft. We have machines to provide information, to dump it all in a pile in front of us. What really smart, intuitive humans can do for each other, as teachers, as colleagues, as administrators, is curate. If we aspire to call ourselves master teachers, we also should be clear on what that actually means. The essence of our work is taking vast swaths of information and helping our students make sense of it. As college instructor Norman Eng said in our interview in episode 65, think of yourself less as a teacher and more as a designer of meaningful experiences. We're going to share the information anyway. We might as well do it with style. To see all of the visuals I described here and read a written version of this podcast, visit cultofpedagogy.com, click podcast, and choose episode 88. 
to get a weekly email from me about my newest blog posts, podcast episodes, and products, sign up for my mailing list at cultofpedagogy.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. This podcast is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. To learn more, visit edupodcastnetwork.com.